am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we're interpreting the Sermon on the Mount. Our text is Matthew 1 through 2. Some of the most recognizable teachings of Jesus come from the Sermon on the Mount. How familiar are these words to you? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and burst against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. How familiar is that? And who doesn't want that, that last one, to stand firm and come out whole in the face of life's storms? For your house to be standing when life is done. Two years ago, I met one of my life's heroes. Theologian D.A. Carson came to a conference in Osijek, Croatia. He was teaching through Ephesians. I'm very much a fanboy you know, drinking in every word, filling up my notebook. I'm also quite introverted. Dr. Carson was surrounded after every session by Croatian leaders and conference organizers, and I didn't want to push my way forward. My wife, Brenda, the extrovert, kept urging me to go introduce myself, but I was just waiting to catch Dr. Carson alone so I wouldn't interrupt anyone else. I never saw him alone, and the conference ended. On our way out, I spotted him standing alone by a door. He was waiting to be interviewed by a Croatian reporter, and I got my chance. Just me and Dr. Carson, I told him how much his commentary on the Gospel of John has meant to me and my own teaching of John. He responded with a wry twinkle in his eye. Yes, people always mention my commentary on John. I also wrote a commentary on Matthew that no one ever mentions. I think it's quite good. I took the nudge, and I bought his commentary on Matthew and another of his books, a short book of six discourses that he first delivered at Cambridge University in 1975 on the Sermon on the Mount. The timing was completely from God. The timing was completely from God. I'd already agreed to write a curriculum for the Sermon on the Mount for a summer camp in Croatia and provide more in-depth teaching for the camp counselors. As my study began, I had this aha moment, that if I want to build my house on the rock of Jesus' words, the words that he's just spoken, I need to understand those words more completely than just knowing the quotable ideas that always get mentioned. I had never studied the Sermon on the Mount as one sermon. It had always come to me in pieces. There's nothing like the motivation that comes from having to teach a text If I'm going to teach the Sermon on the Mount, I better make every effort to follow the logic of the Sermon on the Mount. And that's what I had begun to do when God sent me to Dr. Carson, who has now become my older mentor from afar on this project through his books on Matthew. 
I have some of my own ideas how to approach the Sermon on the Mount, but at the same time, I'm very much in depth to Dr. Carson. My goal for this series is to follow the logic and structure of the sermon in its original context so that we might hear Jesus' words afresh and trust him to help us apply these words to our lives. Looking at the very last verse in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28, 20, we can believe that Jesus wants to help us hear and apply the sermon to our lives. He said to his disciples, of the disciples they would make, teach them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus wants us to understand the Sermon on the Mount. He wants us to apply the Sermon on the Mount, and he is with us, present with us in his spirit to the end of the age. To start us off, I'm not going to jump into the sermon. At first, let's get the context. Matthew sets up the immediate context in just two verses, Matthew 5, 1 to 2. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, If we were to start here on the mountain with the immediate context, we'd miss how much Matthew has already prepared us for this moment. Jesus is not a wandering rabbi. Multitudes are following him already from the capital up in Jerusalem, throughout Judea proper, from surrounding Galilee, even from the Gentile territories of Decapolis and beyond the Jordan River. Jesus is already preaching and teaching and healing and casting out demons. Who is he? What has he come to do? What connection does he have with the promises of old? Matthew gives us a lot of that in chapters 1 through 4. So we're going to take two lessons to get an overview of that context. So that context will be fresh in our minds when we start the Sermon on the Mount in our third lesson. All four Gospels provide some kind of prologue followed by an introduction to the ministry of Jesus that in all four begins with the forerunner, John the Baptist. Mark doesn't really have a prologue per se. He gives us only this one sentence before introducing John the Baptist, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Luke's prologue is much longer, 132 verses, where he provides the birth stories of both John the Baptist and Jesus that we usually read at Christmas time. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a certain priest named Zacharias. John, very much concerned with the divine nature of Jesus, reaches back before the dawn of time in his prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Matthew is most like Luke, but right away you see it's a different prologue, starting with the genealogy of Jesus, and the summary of Jesus' birth doesn't give us everything that Luke gives us, but it does give us some things that Luke doesn't give us. The big picture theme of each gospel is the same, the nature and work of Jesus Christ. And the writers are aligned in their understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. At the same time, each writer has his own emphasis, his own sub-themes to develop, his own audience, and his own personality and style. Matthew's first four chapters set up the narrative context of the gospel, that is the context of the story, 
the story that's going to climax with the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, like in all the other Gospels, he also sets up his thematic context. The Gospels are historical narrative, but not only historical narrative. They are theological historical narratives. The story was written to teach us theological truths and to help us understand the story of Jesus. As we read the prologue of Matthew in chapters 1 and 2, and the introduction of Jesus' public ministry in chapters 3 and 4, we want to pay attention to the big picture themes. Matthew weaves themes together through his gospel. He doesn't provide those themes one by one in a linear sequence of chapters. Several themes are addressed in every section. To move us along in an overview kind of fashion, I'm not going to try to pick out every possible theme introduced in these four chapters. Instead, I'm going to follow three major themes that Matthew addresses in almost every single section of this initial material. Three themes. First, who is Jesus? Second, what did Jesus come to do? Third, is there continuity in God's sovereign plan between Jesus and the teaching of the Old Covenant? Matthew is not going to say everything he wants to say about these three questions in the initial chapters. This is what the whole gospel is for. But he's going to say a lot about these three themes as he, as he sets us up for the rest of the story. The text is organized for us in two parts. Chapters 1 to 2 are where Matthew gives us Jesus' origin. This is the prologue. We're going to do an overview of the prologue in this lesson. In chapters 3 and 4, Matthew gives us the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We'll continue our overview of the context by looking at those chapters in our next lesson. Both of these parts, chapters 1 to 2 and 3 to 4, are going to have six sections each. We're going to address these six sections of the prologue in this lesson, Jesus' origin. We'll address the six sections of the introduction, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, chapters 3 and 4, in our next lesson. All right. Chapters 1 and 2, the prologue, Jesus' origin, section number 1, the genealogy of Jesus. Now, I get that genealogies are not usually exciting to modern readers, but there's some very good stuff in this one. And Matthew explains his organization of the genealogy later in verse 17. I'm going to read that first. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. The genealogy is reminding us of the Old Testament narrative from Abraham to David, from David to the deportation to Babylon, from the deportation to Babylon now to the Messiah. The arrangement of the sections into 14 generations each does not mean that each of, of these sections has an equal number of generations. Some generations are skipped in order to balance this out with 14, 14, 14. So when we read father, we need to read that more generally to mean father or grandfather or great-grandfather and so on. D.A. Carson provides helpful information about two oddities often noticed. He believes the most probable reason for the difference between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy is that Matthew provides the royal line of kings down to Joseph, which takes us to some uncles and brothers, but ultimately ends up with Joseph. Whereas Luke provides the more direct line of biological descent, 
straight down to Joseph. It's hard to be absolutely sure why we have two different genealogies, but that's, a, that's an excellent option. Carson also suggests a reason why Matthew chose to organize the genealogy by three fourteens. The letters of the Hebrew alphabet were also used for the numerical system. So every word can be added up to a number. The name David adds up to 14. That simple solution may be the reason Matthew uses 14 generations for his three periods. I like the solution because in my experience, I don't see the Bible hiding important secret information in numbers and symbols and structure in the text. Many biblical authors use numbers and symbols and structure that's not immediately apparent, but they do so to support or point to information that they have already communicated more directly. The indirect is not esoteric and hidden secret mystery. The indirect communication supports and points back to the direct communication. In this case, If the background number 14 highlights the name David, then that background reinforces what we clearly see in the foreground. This genealogy is very much about linking Jesus to David. We're getting right away some really important information about the question, who is this Jesus? Let's walk through Matthew 1, 1 through 17. I'll make comments as we go, starting with Matthew 1, 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Back to our thematic questions. Question number one, who is Jesus? Very first verse, Jesus is the Messiah. The Greek word here is Christos, which translates as Christ. My Bible says the Messiah to make clear that Christ was originally a title, not a name. The later letters of Paul often communicate both. Jesus Christ is both his name and his title. In Matthew, Christ consistently carries the initial meaning of a title. The word Christ is the Greek for the Hebrew word Messiah. They both mean anointed one. All kings were anointed ones, but Old Testament prophecies looked ahead to a particular anointed son of David, a Messiah or Christ who would sit on David's throne and rule forever. That's Matthew's very first point here. Who is Jesus? He is a king. He is a very particular king. He is the king we've been told to expect, the anointed one, the Christ, the son of David. And as a son of David, tracing his line back to Abraham, to whom God gave the original promises for the people Israel. Question three, is there continuity between Jesus and God's revealed plan? Yes, that's the major point of the genealogy. God is sovereign. Jesus is not an unexpected wrench in the plan. God said there would be a Messiah. There is now a Messiah. God made promises to Abraham. Those promises are now going to be fulfilled. The new covenant is not going to be completely separate from the old. The new fulfills the old. Jesus is the fulfillment of the plan. He's the way God is going to bring about his promises God sovereignly accomplishes everything he has said he will accomplish. Matthew is going to constantly refer back to the Old Testament in a way that shows Jesus as fulfillment of God's sovereign plan. That plan did not begin with David, 
Matthew takes us back to Abraham. Verses 2 through 6, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. Abraham and David stand out as the most significant names in this list from the standpoint of covenant promises. God cut covenant with Abraham with the promise of blessing through the specific line of Isaac and Jacob, who are mentioned here. God also cut covenant with David, promising that his line would never cease. Those promises are tied historically to a particular people through time. This is history. Abraham and David are the two most obvious names in this list. The three most unexpected names so far are Tamar, Ruth, and Rahab. Ancient genealogies did not usually include women. If they did, they would certainly not include these three women. None are queens, none are noble, none are even ethnic Israelites. Worse, Tamar played the part of a prostitute, Rahab was a prostitute, and Ruth, though noble in character, was of the line of Moab, who was born of incest between Lot and one of his daughters. There's a fourth unexpected name in the first line of the middle section of the genealogy. You know, the next verse, David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Bathsheba's story is also tainted by sexual impropriety, and though she was born an Israelite, she would have been recognized as a Hittite when she married Uriah. What's going on here? At the very least, Jesus has just been linked to both men and women, to both Jew and Gentile, and to both faithful and sinful. I think these women help introduce the issue of sin in a way that raises questions related to theme number two. What has Jesus come to do? These women may be considered by society tainted, by the presence of sexual sin somewhere in their personal story or history. But from a biblical point of view, these particular women are shown to be courageous and noble and faithful, at least more noble than many of the men in their stories. What did Jesus come to do? Who did he come to save? Does he care about shame in the same way society cares about shame? What kind of status or behavior does God consider righteous? From the start, Matthew suggest two tensions. First, who are the accepted people of God? Second, what does a Jewish Messiah have to do with non-Jews? These Gentile women, listed mostly in the Abraham section of the genealogy, bring to mind God's initial promise. Not only did God promise to bless Abraham and his descendants, God also promised to make Abraham and his seed a blessing to the nations. And that's how Matthew's gospel is going to end. The Jewish Messiah is going to claim all authority in heaven and earth. Then he's going to tell his Jewish disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. The hint of all the nations and the question, who are true disciples, is already present in the genealogy. Is there continuity in the story from Abraham to Jesus? You better believe there is. 
And so the list continues, from king to king, mostly bad men, a few faithful to God, but none holy. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Those names may not be unfamiliar. We meet most of them in the books of 1 and 2 Kings, top down and bottom up. Faithlessness in worship and corruption in morals leads first to the exile of the northern kingdom Israel and then to the exile of the southern kingdom Judah. That's where this genealogy takes us, emphasizing at the end of this middle section the deportation to Babylon. The covenant promises to Abraham and David seem irretrievably broken with the destruction of Jerusalem, the burning of the temple, and the exile of God's people. But God is sovereign. The line of David continues even in exile, and people are brought home. Now, only a few of these names are going to be familiar, maybe from Ezra and Nehemiah. The rest would have been kept in the extensive Jewish genealogy records. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. This genealogy is here to remind us of the story of God. As we read the names, we're supposed to remember the Old Testament, remember the faithlessness and the faithfulness of kings, to remember the promises made to Israel through Abraham and David. And this story was not over for first century Jews. National redemption was not complete. First century Jews did not believe the exile from Babylon was yet over. They had returned to Jerusalem. They had rebuilt the temple. But as long as some foreign power reigned over Israel, like Rome, the nation could not be said to have returned. Your national redemption would remain incomplete until the son of David sat on the throne and Israel was reconstituted as an autonomous nation, free from the tyranny of any foreign emperor. Is that what Jesus came to do? Leaving that question hanging, we move from Jesus' genealogy to his birth. Matthew 1, 18-25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph woke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Again, both a man and a woman are central to the story. The woman is more central. The Holy Spirit is essential. Who is this Jesus born like no other of a woman conceived by the Holy Spirit? An angel gives indication of both who Jesus is and what he has come to do. The names are really important in this story. The angel tells Joseph his name is Jesus. Jesus means Yahweh saves. Saves from what? From the oppression of Rome? It's not what the angel says. You shall call his name Jesus, Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. This is both who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Matthew continues with his first direct quote of the Old Testament, Isaiah 7:14, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Again, who is this Jesus? He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Matthew continues to quote from Old Testament prophets in each of the next three sections. Listen for the prophecy in this next one, the story of the wise men. Matthew 2, 1-12. through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. If we haven't picked up on it now, this story is about a king, a Christ, an anointed one. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. The prophecy quoted to Herod by his advisors comes from Micah 5.2. God knew beforehand where and when Jesus would be born. Fulfillment of this kind of prophecy confirms facts announced beforehand and shows us that God has sovereign control over events. Jesus is indeed the Messiah. This particular prophecy again affirms Jesus' royal status. He will rule as a shepherd of his people. The star followed by the wise men affirms what was already clear from the birth narrative. Jesus' coming is supernatural and unique. The coming of the wise men also creates a similar tension to the one hinted at in the genealogy. Why are Gentiles 
from the Persian Empire seeking out a Jewish king? Even more, why do they worship this Jewish king? That might be the right response to an Eastern king. You know, maybe people worshiped an Eastern king. It's not the right response to a Jewish king unless he's more than a Jewish king. Unless we are able to take the name Emmanuel literally, and he really is God with us, then to worship him is right. In the next section, an angel appears again. God is in control of the events. And so he warns Joseph to get out of Israel. Listen again for the prophecy. This is Matthew 2, 13 to 15. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. The quote of Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I called my son, is not the same kind of prophetic connection that we see in the previous prophecy about where Jesus will be born. That Jesus will be born in Bethlehem is the kind of specific foretelling we tend to associate with prophecy. In this prophecy, Matthew is doing something different. Matthew recognizes a symbolic connection between a literal historic event and a broader theological reality. The literal history is this. God called Israel, represented as his son, out of Egypt under Moses. That was the Exodus. Now, God calls his son Jesus, who represents Israel, out of Egypt where the family had fled. That's the history. The literal calling of Israel and Jesus out of Egypt introduces the theological symbolism of the Exodus into the story of Jesus. So then we're asking, how is Jesus like Moses? God sent Moses to redeem Israel out of Egypt and constitute them as a nation at Mount Sinai. Jesus coming up out of Egypt creates a parallel between what Moses did and what Jesus is doing or is going to do. And the symbolism has even more depth than this. It's not only this direct connection between Moses and Jesus. Matthew early on in the genealogy reminded us of the Babylonian exile. The Old Testament prophets regularly use the Exodus motif to describe this coming exile. Just as Israel had been enslaved in Egypt, now Israel would be enslaved in Assyria and Babylon. And just as God redeemed the nation from Egypt, so too God would redeem the nation from Assyria and Babylon. Hosea is a prophet living during the time of the Assyrian threat. The Assyrians eventually crush and deport the northern kingdom of Israel. Hosea uses the language of the Exodus to prophesy about the coming exile. So now Matthew is able to build on this prophetic tradition, and he is able to use the Egypt Exodus language to create a wide-ranging motif that connects Jesus both to the exodus under Moses and to the exile by Assyria and Babylon. So now Matthew has introduced this motif of exile as seen through the exodus, 
and he continues to build on it in the next section, the story of the Bethlehem massacre in Matthew 2, 16 to 18. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Herod's demonic behavior sets him up as sort of an antichrist. Jesus is the good king, the good shepherd come to rule. Herod is the bad king, the bad shepherd who steals and kills and destroys. Here again, there's a double connection between Jesus and the exodus and Jesus and the exile. Herod is acting like Pharaoh who threw Hebrew babies into the Nile. That's the exodus connection. Jeremiah's prophecy of weeping was first fulfilled in the exile of Israel to Babylon, and now it's fulfilled here again by the mothers of Bethlehem. That's the exile connection. The last story in chapters 1 to 2 brings Jesus back to Nazareth. This is Matthew 2:19 to 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then, after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee, and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. For a third and even a fourth time, God guides Joseph. The first message sends him to the land of Israel. And apparently Joseph is headed back to Judea, maybe Bethlehem. He learns some troubling news. And before they arrive, God specifies where in the land of Israel he is to go. He's to go back to Nazareth. You won't find a specific Old Testament prophecy that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. The statement, he shall be called a Nazarene, seems to be an example of a specific reality that affirms a general prophetic theme. Several prophecies indicate that the Messiah would live on the peripheral of society. Isaiah wrote that he would have no stately form or majesty. He would be despised and forsaken, not esteemed. That description sums up well the Judean attitude towards a backward Nazarene from Galilee. And we have here yet another tension in the story. Who is he, king of the Jews, yet worshipped by Gentiles? He's also son of God, yet socially of no account, despised, not esteemed. That's the prologue, Jesus' origin, chapters 1 and 2. We focused on three thematic questions. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? Is there continuity in God's sovereign plan between Jesus and the teaching of the Old Covenant? This prologue has given us a lot on who is Jesus. He is the Christ, the Anointed One, seed of Abraham, son of David, born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, named Yahweh saves, also Emmanuel, God with us, 
worshipped by wise men, born in Bethlehem as ruler and shepherd, the baby saved from massacre like Moses, and yet growing up on the outskirts of Judean society, unesteemed from Nazareth. We have also touched on what Jesus has come to do. That theme is going to be addressed even more in chapters 3 through 4, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and that's where we pick up in our next lesson. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like the overview chart or other resources that go with our study on the Sermon on the Mount, then check out our resource page at observetheword.com. You can also find there our previous series on the Pentateuch, Isaiah, John, Acts, and Romans.